Welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast, a podcast focused on optimizing health and performance through a low-carb lifestyle. Every episode will bring you a step closer to living an amazing low-carb life. Come join us for this exciting journey. And here is your low-carb leader and host, Dan Perryman. Hello and welcome to the Low Carb Leader. You have joined us for episode 22. On today's show, we have Dr. Jay, chiropractor and a functional medicine expert. So today, Jacob is joining us. Jacob, how are you? I'm happy to be here. So Jacob, you have been tinkering with diet and fitness lately, which is unlike you. It's very unlike me. And um, thanks to you and uh, from what I've learned here and, and watching you go through some of your crazy diets and, and you know, I didn't want to follow the physique challenge diet because I, I, I have no physique, which is probably some of the reason why I need to be doing this. And um, now that you've settled into your low carb knowledge and, and what you've been passed on to me, I've realized that my diet needs to change if I want to have a healthier lifestyle as I get older. Yeah. So what have you been doing differently? First thing I did and the big thing I did was um, cut out sugar. I, I was a devoted dessert man. And if you had allowed it, I would have had dessert with all three meals, including breakfast. You did. <laughs> I did. Well, yeah. Well, it's a little embarrassing. But, and, and the other thing I did was I cut out breakfast. So I went to um, intermittent fasting. So you don't eat breakfast and you don't eat until about noon, but you've changed what you eat at noon as well. Yeah, I've changed what I eat at noon. I don't eat chips. Um, I don't, I, I used to be a big sandwich guy. And so I've stopped eating just a sandwich and that bread all the time. And I, I get to where I eat a, a protein and um, look for a green vegetable. But you do eat dessert occasionally. I eat dessert occasionally. If I eat dessert, it's at night, um, which um, is also where I eat the majority of my carbs. And um, for the low carb portion because it is difficult to to do this type of lifestyle or this change when you are with a family and with a wife and and two younger daughters um you know to to get them to change i would have had to go through the house and throw away all the sugar and then anytime my wife rochelle wanted a, a piece of chocolate or anything i would just look at her and yell poison and, and see how that went <laughs> And both of your kids have gained weight because you quit stealing their fries. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, that's good. And you don't, you didn't need to lose any weight because you're six foot, six foot one, six foot one, and you weigh a hundred and sixty-eight, sixty-eight. But you yeah. actually lost quite a bit of weight. I did. I lost eight pounds um, by doing this, so I went to one hundred um, and sixty. And the realization came when I walked in from work one day and was changing out of my work clothes and i was like holy cow these pants actually feel loose um and then so i ran downstairs and weighed myself and i was like oh oh man uh, this really does change your lifestyle which is unfortunate because you just bought a bunch of new suits and those had, fit. And had them, oh they fit those now. fit oh, that's uh -huh. good yeah so one of the things when you do go on a low carb diet you get rid of water you get rid of glycogen and so people do lose a lot of weight their first week or two, which shows you you're doing it correctly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, keep it up. You're doing a good job. Thanks. So a couple things before we get into the interview, uh, we have the 14 day Tabata challenge. And if you go to uh, the Facebook page, the low carb leader, you can see the sign up button. It's free and it should be a lot of fun right now. We've been advertising it for maybe three or four days and we have 250 people that are going to do it. So this is going to be cool. It's going to start March 15th, and we're just going to have some fun events. It's going to be a virtual type of exercise program, and people can all do Tabata in their homes, then participate in a private Facebook group, and then we'll have some videos, and we'll have some extra bonuses, and this is just a way to bring the community together and to get uh, people started on their fitness journey, or I'm sure there's some people that are in shape and just want to do Tabata, but that's four minutes of exercise a day, and it's uh, really good for you, and it's a, it's a great way to start. So check out the Facebook page, and you, you can sign up. 
I'm excited about it. I'm going to incorporate it into the, the workouts that I've started and you're being modest. You got some really cool stuff planned for as the bonuses. So um, you need to sign up and check that out. Yeah. So that's good. And speaking of the Facebook page, unbelievably, uh, we have 40,000 followers on the Facebook page. That's awesome. That's, that's crazy. So thank you everybody for following. And uh, I am on Instagram as well under the low carb leader. So come check out the social media. I think it's pretty entertaining. I do too. I, I love your um, mix of, of the recipes you've posted and and um, some of the funny memes and and you know that's I think it's a good mix. Yeah, so come check that stuff out. All right, so without further ado, we're going to get into Dr. J. He is a very skilled chiropractor and functional medicine expert, and uh, we hope you enjoy the interview. On today's show, we have Dr. Justin Marcagiani. Dr. J is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst with a degree in kinesiology and pre-medical studies. Dr. J has completed his doctorate degree in chiropractic medicine from LifeWest University. He has completed postgraduate studies in the area of clinical nutrition, rehab exercise, functional medicine, and he also has years worth of specializations, which uh, he can explain as we get into the interview. So Dr. J, welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot. It's great here to it's great to be here, Daniel. We're really excited to be on. Yeah, and we have Jacob here in the not as always, but sometimes now. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, you want to just give the listeners a background and rather than me reading all your specializations, if you could kind of talk through those, because those are very impressive. Oh yeah, absolutely. So off the bat Anyone who's a healthcare provider, they kind of jump into the healthcare field, whether it's as a nurse or a physician or as a personal trainer, and you have this set of tools that you were given at university, maybe the, this conventional standard of tools, and eventually you kind of get tapped out. You have patients where you can't quite help them get over that hump. And for me, it started out as a personal trainer about 15 years ago while at university. So I was training, and then you're working with people on the exercise piece, and then you can't quite get them over the hump. And then that's where nutrition came in. All right, well, we got to do this exercise stuff and we got to also change the nutrition. And then eventually you're kind of tapped out there as well. And that's where the goal and the striving to get functional medicine uh, strategies under my belt was, was the next piece because it was the bridge, in my opinion, that was preventing patients who were doing the diet okay, doing the lifestyle okay, and that kind of got them over the hump. Now, for me, I was also working in a hospital setting too, so I was in a surgical field where I was helping the physicians, the surgeons, amputate the limbs of these diabetic patients. So I had hundreds of limbs literally passed through my possession to the morgue, and that really got me thinking, like, how can we get in front of this? How can we start preventing this? Because these physicians, I mean, they were just, it was a amputee mill in there. They weren't really concerned about the diet and lifestyle and functional medicine implications of how we can get ahead of this and actually prevent it. So having that kind of background is really what motivated me to look for the bridge to get people over the hump of diet and lifestyle and exercise isn't working. What's the next step? And that's where we found and I found hormonal barriers being an issue, whether it's thyroid, female hormones, or uh, even just adrenal hormones as well, autoimmune implications, Hashimoto's, others, leaky gut, malabsorption, chronic infections. And then obviously nutrient deficiencies, which then affect the neurotransmitters, detoxification, methylation, and mitochondria. So then this was really the bridge for me that was helping my patients that were sick, that were tired, that were fatigued, that were moody, that had hormonal imbalances and chronic digestion issues, kind of get over that hump to that next step. Just a little bit about your background. Were you planning on going to medical school or were you always going to go to chiropractic? No, I was actually, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon at first because I was really interested in athletics and sports and I was a trainer at the time as well. So I was really wanted to go that way and I had injuries and such and I was helped by chiropractors my whole life. So that kind of pushed me of like, hey, most people rather not get cut open if they don't have to, right? So I was interested in the conventional side at first, but then I'm you know, always about the most, the most conservative approach first and then going more invasive if you need to. So I was kind of on the fence there, but you know, the more I had my eyes opened up by other practitioners that had come before me that were very successful, just a big fan of success leaves clues and footprints. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You can just see what successful people are doing and kind of follow in line, so to speak. 
you know, I think maybe some of our listeners right now are maybe not familiar with the difference between conventional medicine and functional medicine. You, you just want to explain the differences and how the two different approaches work together? Absolutely. So I kind of talk about this analogy as a light switch. So imagine a light switch that just goes on and off. That's conventional medicine. On, you have a disease. Off, you don't. So essentially in conventional medicine, health is absence of disease. So if you don't have diabetes, your blood sugar is perfect. <laughs> if you don't have blatant hypothyroidism, extreme elevations in TSH, right, your thyroid's perfect. But we know that health exists on a continuum. So in the functional medicine analogy, imagine a light switch that has a dimmer to it. So it's not necessarily on or off. It can exist in a continuum of on and off. And that's where people's health exists. The problem is, let's say the light's just on a tiny bit, right? Well, that's like having a lot of health issues, but you're not quite diseased. You go to the doctor, the conventional doctor, and they tell you, well, you know, the light's still on a little bit, so you're, you're, you're okay. And then if you come back again, we may just tell you it's all in your head and then recommend an antidepressant. And if you're a female, I'll probably throw you on a birth control pill as well. So the, the light switch analogy kind of works on and off, disease, not disease is conventional medicine versus health existing on a spectrum um, somewhere in between. And the goal is to have that light all the way on, but a lot of people may have it on just a glimmer. And because the conventional medical paradigm is on or off, they see it as on and they say, hey, you're okay. That is such a good analogy. I'm going to start using that one. And that is so true. Jacob and I both work in the hospital and it is either... Absolutely. You are diseased or you're not diseased. I even found that when I did my fast and I would talk to doctors because I know a lot of them and I'd say I'm doing a fast and they would say, oh, you're, you know, you got to be careful about, you know, ketoacidosis. There was, right. there was no acknowledgement of, oh, you could have ketones in the range of three to five and not drop dead. So that is so true what you're saying. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's such a great analogy. Excellent. And the big thing is in, tra in trauma-based acute care medicine, like that makes sense, right? Like you're either shot by the, the bullet or you aren't, you know, you're shot by the gun or you aren't. You're either in the car accident or you weren't. You either fell and slipped and cracked your head open or you didn't, right? So it makes sense when it comes to trauma care that that may be okay and that makes a lot of sense because the underlying cause isn't repeating itself day after day, right? Once you got in that car accident and you broke your leg, you're not waking up every morning getting in a, in a car accident. But we know people that are mismanaging their blood sugar, that happens three, four, five times a day, every day for the rest of their life. So it's like a little micro car accident happening under the surface, but because it's subtle and you can't really see it, it doesn't have all the, the, uh, the glitz and glamor of something acute and loud like a car accident, it flies under the radar with these conventional physicians. I'm looking at your specialization since 2007. So you've been practicing for how many years? I've been practicing functional medicine for the last six years, but I've been in the healthcare field for about, I would say since 2005 as a, as a trainer at first. And that's really what got me in there, training people, like I mentioned, and hitting the wall of like, all right, great. We only could do so much with exercise. Hitting the wall, we only could do so much with diet. So I got really good at the diet pieces, and I know you guys have a kind of a, a lower carbohydrate type of bias, which that's where I started, and that's kind of where I live now. I'm kind of on a, a lower carb paleo template. I find most people, especially if they have insulin resistance and metabolic issues, they always do good there as a starting point and then fine tuning as we go. So yeah, that's kind of how I moved into that field. On your specializations, are there certain areas that you enjoy practicing around more than others? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thyroid issues is one of my main specialties because I discovered at one point I had a autoimmune thyroid condition called Hashimoto's where I ran some testing back in I'd say the 2007, 2009 area and I found some a slight elevation in, in TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies. Now my TSH, which is the main hormone they use to diagnose hypothyroidism was okay. And my T4 numbers, which is the second hormone that typically tests, right? TSH is a brain hormone. TSH talks to the thyroid to make T4, and then T4 is peripherally converted to T3. So we have this activation effect happening, this domino rally of your thyroid hormone cascaded. And I saw TSH looks good, T4 looked pretty good, and even my T3 looked decent because I was doing a lot of really good things with my health at the time, but I started to have these antibody issues. 
And from there, I found underlying infections that could have been driving it, as well as potential nutrient deficiencies, as well as uh, potential cross-reactivity and cross-contamination with gluten being a big stimulator of the uh, Hashimoto's. What steps did you take then when you diagnosed that in yourself? I know a lot of women primarily that will talk about thyroid issues. Is uh, thyroid as common in men as it is in women? Women tend to have, I think, four to five times more autoimmune issues in general as men just because of the fact that the immune system is a little bit different due to the higher levels of estrogen. The higher levels of estrogen affect the immune system in what's called the Th1, Th2 balance of your immune cells, and it can affect what's called the CD8 to CD4 balance. So because of the higher levels of estrogen, it can affect the immune system and make women more prone to autoimmune issues, but there are still million, millions of men out there that have autoimmune issues, and I'm one of them, and I was just lucky to even get it looked at and tested because most people out there aren't even assessed for autoimmune issues, and the question becomes why, and the reason why is because the standard of care in conventional medicine doesn't change. Because a lot of the dangerous immunosuppressive medications used for more serious autoimmune conditions, maybe like MS or Parkinson's, whether it's like corticosteroids or immunosuppressive dr drugs, necessarily cr would create more problems treating a autoimmune thyroid issue. So most of the time, these thyroid patients that are autoimmune don't even get touched or looked at, and I would have been one of them. And we know that the odds are with elevations in antibodies, even a little bit, that increases our chance of going hypothyroidism now by 800%. So I saw this kind of as the early warning sign, hey, the, the fire alarm went off as a little bit of smoke, and I saw this as an opportunity to put out the fire but before it became a really big fire, so to speak. So when you were diagnosed with this, talk a little bit about how you ate, how you lived, and then what were the changes that you took upon yourself to uh, manage this disease? Oh, great question. So off the bat, at the time, I was kind of gluten-free, so to speak, which is okay, but a lot of people will still eat a whole bunch of foods that may be more irritating, like rice and corn. They may do a lot of oats. They may even do excessive amounts of potatoes and things like that that could cross-react with gluten, right? So if gluten is, if gluten is your, your mom or your dad, think of the cross-reactive foods as like brothers and sisters and cousins. They're in that family tree. They're not like the direct you know, the direct descendants, so to speak, like wheat, barley, and rye are gluten, right? They're kind of the, the cousins and brothers and sisters and the extended family. So what I did was is I removed some of those extended families of foods and kind of went more on a, a stricter paleo slash autoimmune paleo template. And I use the word template because I don't like the word diet. Number one is the first three words are diet. <laughs> Number two is diet is automatically implied to be temporary, and uh, number three, I want to make a lifestyle change that has flexibility in it because some people with their diet and lifestyle changes, they may want to go lower carb or higher carb. So I like the flexibility that I have to customize the macronutrients for the patient. So for myself, I started off with kind of a lower carb, cyclical, ketogenic, autoimmune, paleo template. From there, really maximizing nutrient deficiencies, a big one, selenium and zinc and a lot of autoimmune people. Also, vitamin A is really important. And then from there, getting the adrenals supported. The adrenals have a lot to do with thyroid conversion and hormone activation. Uh, addressing underlying fungal imbalances that I had in my gut. Addressing a couple of parasitic infections, H. pylori, cryptosporidium, and blasto. And then supporting the brain, the neurotransmitters, because I really had burned up a lot of dopamine and adrenaline. And we need dopamine for thyroid hormone activation in the hypothalamus via TRH, thyroid-releasing hormone. So supporting dopamine and adrenaline levels, and then just making sure the key three, body systems one, two, and three were all dialed in. So hormones, ATM for me, adrenals, thyroid, male hormones, body system two, infections, malabsorption, food allergens, leaky gut, and then body system three is detox and nutrients and neurotransmitters. So getting all those things lined up, and of course, you know, stabilizing blood sugar, not skipping breakfast. For me, that was a big one, because blood sugar issues can be a big issue. Uh, making sure the right amount of exercise, not doing too much, but not doing too little. And also getting really good sleep, high quality sleep. It was super important. And also the hydration piece. Dr. J, how do you incorporate all this into your practice with your patients and, and educate them to the level um, that they understand and are able to put this in, into their own life? 
I think that's a really important question because I think a lot of functional medicine people, they skip the foundational piece because they want to go into the fancy lab testing or the fancy protocols, which they have a great place and they're very important. But my background started with my only tools being exercise and nutrition. So because I had that emphasis in the beginning, I really focused on are we doing too much or too little exercise? Because for me, most people, in my opinion, it's it's at an extreme. They're either CrossFitters and they're destroying themselves or they're just sedentary and not getting enough. So finding the right amount of exercise, one, they felt energized. Two, they felt like they could repeat the movements 10, 15 minutes later. And three, the next day they woke up, they felt like they weren't hit by a bus. And then trying to choose more resistance burst training over long distance uh, cardio was always a a good step because that helped the hormonal profile to be more anabolic, less cortisol dependent and more uh, anabolic hormone dependent, growth hormone and or testosterone or progesterone depending if they were male or female. So the diet piece or the, the exercise piece was the first step along with the nutrition and then making sure food quality was up, right? Nutrient dense, anti-inflammatory, low toxin foods. That was the first criteria. The next was dialing in the macronutrients. Most people needed to go lower carbohydrate to start because of insulin resistance. Insulin creates inflammation. It affects thyroid conversion. It affects cortisol levels. Uh, it does a whole bunch of different things. So making sure the carbs were dialed in, making sure there were enough fats because fats and cholesterol were so important for hormone building blocks. And if we didn't have enough of those there, we wouldn't have the raw material to build healthy hormones. And then that also had a big effect on stabilizing blood sugar because many people didn't have enough protein and fat because of the low carb vegetarian, I'm sorry, the lower fat vegetarian kicks that are out there. People would have very low blood sugar issues and they'd be constantly requiring their adrenals to come to the rescue to help stabilize blood sugar in between meals. So that was always a foundational piece for me. And I think anyone that has a chronic illness or health issue at all, that they cannot be ignored. Yeah, I actually have uh, three questions and comments from what you said. I think the idea of individualizing your nutrition, even though we do have a low carb slant here, which I, I believe because that has worked really well for me. But if personally, if I stay really low carb for maybe two, three weeks, my sleep gets disrupted. And so I, yep. I have to take three or four days where I eat like rice or some something at night in order to kind of reset those levels. So mm-hmm. and, I, and I hear a lot of, about people just staying low carb forever. And I think Carbs do play a part, but I think in generally staying low carb is, you know, controls your sugar better. Have you, do you see a lot of sleep disruption for people who are low carb? I can. And I think everyone's a little bit different because some people really hyper secrete insulin and, and they're more insulin, they hyper secrete insulin. So they're more prone to be insulin resistant with excessive carbohydrate and excessive may be at 100 or 150, right? We're not talking three, 400 grams of carbs like the food pyramid says. So I think it really depends. So I think some people, they are more carb sensitive, meaning, um, I'm sorry, they're more insulin sensitive, meaning they can handle some carbohydrates and maybe their activity level and their stress based on their work and their exercise routine, maybe they need a little bit more carbohydrate as well. So I think some people can get away with it because of how their body handles the carbohydrate. So my first step is the default is I look at their height and weight. Are they overweight? What's their BMI? BMI is not the greatest because it doesn't take into account muscle. So I also look at waist to hip ratio, right? So women around 0.8 or so, men around one to one, that can be very helpful because if the waist starts to get bigger than the hips in general, that's a sign of insulin resistance. That's your insulin blood sugar meter. So that's a good step. If I see any height to weight issues that are off, if I see any hip to waist issues that are off or excessive inflammation, my default always is to go more on the lower carbohydrate side at or around 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate starting. And then from there, we can dial it in. Now, some people on the insulin resistance side hit a wall where they start having sleep issues like you mentioned, Daniel. They start having dry eyes. They may start feeling a little bit of coldness or having a little bit of hair loss. And sometimes we need a little bit of insulin for that thyroid conversion. So we may start and just add Almost like an Atkins approach, once you, re- once you reach the owl phase, is adding 10 grams of carbs per week and see if that tweaks it. And then just continue to add that 10 to 15 grams of carbs per week and see if you start to come out of it and see if you start moving the needle and feeling better. So stabilize and then we can integrate other 
modalities of, of upping the macros in certain ways. So I like that. So I can see some of the hair loss, the coldness, but then I see some people that really, really do great. So I find that you really got to individualize it. And I think it's always good to kind of be cyclical, like you said, is, you know, do it for a couple of days and then come out of it and do a higher carb kick, whether it's like a cyclical keto or like an alt shift kind of, kind of diet deal. I mean, that can really help to mix it up because it makes sense evolutionarily. We probably weren't always eating one type of macronutrient kick. We probably always weren't low carb because if we were, when the spring comes and the berries are out and there's more starch and tubers, we probably had these little bumps in carbs just naturally based on the environment. Yeah. When I was training for a couple of physique shows, I would stay pretty low carb during the week and then incorporate cheat meals to kind of reset your, you know, your body. So th that seemed to really help. Yeah, those are great points. I, the next question I had is you mentioned exercise and stress, and and I absolutely agree. I think that people, they go to extremes, and no offense to CrossFitters, but you know we have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, and he said, thank goodness for CrossFitters because it keeps me in business, you know, because so, so many people get injured. But exercising to an extreme can cause undue stress on your body and actually be counterproductive, correct? hundred percent. I see that all the time. And I think the worst part of CrossFit, I mean, CrossFit in general is great for about 10% of the population as a whole. What they're doing is great for everyone. I think the last 20 minutes of a CrossFit workout is probably the worst aspect when they go into that AMRAP phase. They do as many reps as possible. They put the timer up 15 minutes, don't stop. And you go from station to station to station. I think that's probably the worst part because people get competitive, their, their quality of reps start dropping, and there's not a lot of downtime and rest to, to kind of get those ATP and, and get your nervous system back on track for the next set. So I think like the first half of a CrossFit workout when you're doing one to two exercises and you're kind of getting a break in and you're doing functional movements, maybe adding some Olympic lifts, good compounding movements is great. That first 30 minutes of a CrossFit workout is probably what most people need. And then everything else, I think, Maybe to the excess, like your orthopedic surgeon's friend said, it's probably, you know, keeping them in business. Just like I say, the, the low fat, low cholesterol era really gave me great business with my female hormone patients because it was a big driving factor of throwing their hormones out of balance. Yeah. And you mentioned steady state cardio versus HIT. Then there's times where steady state cardio is good for mitochondrial function and those things. But the people that get on treadmills and stay on them for hours at a time, as opposed to doing HIT, talk a little bit about your thoughts on that because that's that's kind of a big discussion. There are steady state supporters and then there's HIT supporters and there's a lot of different research, but it seems everything I've read, HIT is very effective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the big thing you get with HIT, which is high intensity interval training, is you get the growth hormone spike. And that's primarily driven by EPOC or exercise post-oxygen consumption. So that feeling of getting out of breath, that really drives a significant growth hormone response and it increases your metabolism, according to research, about 20% for about one to two days afterwards. So it's not about the calories you burn during the actual exercise, it's the metabolic effect that you create that lasts one to two days later. It's also the, the growth hormone that puts on more muscle. The more muscle you have, the more insulin sensitive you are, right? And we know insulin's a storage hormone, and part of the storage side of it's also the fat storage. So the more insulin sensitive you are, the less insulin you need to, to help shove proteins into or amino acids into the muscles and fats into the uh, carbohydrates into fat cells. So the more insulin uh, you have, the fatter you get, the less insulin you need, the better in general. So regarding that piece, you have a hormonal aspect of HIT that's far more beneficial in the short term because you get a 15 minute, 20 minute workout that lasts you two days regarding the uh, after effects and the benefits. Now the cardio, steady state cardio, you're gonna have benefits, but typically only during that time frame, only during that workout. It's not gonna last like a metabolic effect that you get from HIT. Now, number two with steady state cardio, again, if you're training for marathons or triathlons, you gotta do it because you gotta actually do the movements that you're gonna be competing in. So I get it, if you're trying to do marathons, or triathlons, or movements that require steady state cardio in that movement, then it makes sense. But most people are doing the distance training because it's just easy. I mean, you get like 50 degrees or 60 degrees of flexion and extension at the hip flexor that allows you to run. There's virtually no thinking that involves, you just go out, throw your iPod in there, and then just go run for 20, you know, 50 minutes an hour. 
So it's not the best, but it's super easy. Um, but most people that are doing it, they just think that it's the right thing because it's easy and it's what everyone talks about, but it's not the best thing for your hormones. It's going to create more cortisol. Uh, marathon runners are shown to have immunocompromisation after marathons, lower IgA. And again, why is that? Because of the stress hormones that are being produced. And then you can just go on Google image right now and just type in sprinter versus marathoner. And you can get a pretty good idea of what happens to the body and the muscles. And you can see it's like you have someone that's sarcopenic and incredibly emaciated looking on one extreme. The people that have on the sprinter or hits um, side of the fence, great muscle tone, great glutes, really strong, powerful, functional bodies. I just had this discussion a couple of days ago. And I view weight training as kind of a hit training, too, because it's, it's difficult. But most of the energy calories we burn is, you know, during the resting metabolic rate. And so I see a lot of people on the treadmill that are on the treadmill work really hard every day. You see them sweat and you see them working out. But, you know, I've been going to the same gym for three years and a lot of them haven't changed their body composition at all over three years. I feel bad because they work really hard and I don't think they're getting the benefits. A hundred percent. Now, you get some people that they're working hard and they, they don't get the benefits, and you get some people that, that look great, they're really lean, but the question is, you know, if they were doing something else, would they look even better? I mean, it's like, why do, you know, who are the average people that really just gravitate towards and, and play basketball, for instance, right? Taller, skinnier people are what gravitates towards that. If you look at who the best runners are and who gravitates towards distance running, I see it in my neighborhood all the time, taller, you know, skinnier people tend to drive to that, right? Especially women that don't have the, the larger hips because they, the cue angle at the knee produces less stress. So again, certain types of exercise will pull from certain body types that just accelerate at it naturally. We know that, right? Every winning marathon runner almost looks exactly the same if you look at them. You're not gonna see someone out of, the, uh, out of that spectrum. So my point with that is that most people will gravitate towards certain things just based on their natural body type. But we have to look at it and say, all right, well, what's going to be the best goal? What's going to be the easiest and most effective exercise to get the goals that I want, which is less oxidative stress, more muscle tone, more insulin sensitivity, you know, less inflammation, and also functional functionality because a lot of the exercises we want to do, we want them to be functional movements that correlate in life. So that 60 to 80 degree hip angle, hip extension at the hip flexor and so as doesn't really correlate to a lot of lifestyle activities. But if we're doing lunges and one-legged squats and deadlifts and front squats and cleans, and these things correlate to our everyday life. I mean, you try picking up your child, bending over and sliding into the car seat to put your child in, that's a one-legged squat deadlift right there, right? So that's, we want to choose movements that actually correlate in life. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I was just going to share, and of course, this is an N of one because it's with me, but Doing two different physique shows the first time, you know, it's, it's calorie restriction and, and hard working, working out. Yeah. And, but I did hit a lot during the first show. And then I, the second time I did no cardio whatsoever and I actually got to a lower percent of body fat. So I know a lot of people do cardio because they want to lose fat. But at least in my case, it it all came about with calorie restriction, what I ate and, and lifting weights do you typically see that when uh, when people do cardio versus when they don't do it with fat loss, or is that just uh, particular to certain people? So regarding cardiovascular exercise and fat loss, you can definitely lose fat with cardiovascular exercise, especially like I'm talking treadmill, I'm talking elliptical, I'm talking bike, especially if you're kind of going lower calorie, lower fat, and low carb. That's probably the easiest way to lose fat in the short run, again, unsustainable because you have lower fat going on, you have low calorie, which is automatically unsustainable, and the low carb will help drive the insulin down, which will help you lose fat more. That's like really good for kind of a bodybuilding kind of show kind of thing, getting that ready, you know, boneless, skinless chicken breast, tuna fish, those kind of things. But again, when it comes to cardiovascular exercise, what that really means is getting your heart rate up to a certain zone, and that could be at a 120 zone where you're just trying to focus on burning fat to a more anaerobic 140, 160 and up, which is gonna have more growth hormone implications and more muscle building. And I always tell people that you can get into a cardiovascular zone and higher 
by just doing two movements back to back. I mean, if you just take a heavy deadlift and you take your heart rate right after that, you're probably going to be at 140, 150. And if you combine a deadlift to maybe something that's not going to be looking at the lower body like push-ups right after that and you test your heart rate, you're going to be at 160 plus. So you can still use interval or I should say more circuit type of resistance training and still get a cardiovascular effect from that kind of training. Oh, great. Yeah, I know personally HIT is really difficult. <laughs> you, know, you can exercise for just a few minutes and feel like you need to throw up. So, uh, yeah. It's, it's, and with a hit, yeah, and with a hit, you could do like a Tabata kind of style where you're doing 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off, you know, eight sets for four minutes, or you can do kind of like a Mercola peak eight where you're doing a 30 on, 90 off. And you can, you know, in my home gym, I have, um, I have a rower where I'll do a lot of my stuff at. And then you can also just do simple things like um, burpees, you know, burpees for 30 seconds in a row. You know, you go into a push-up and then you stand up, reach high, and then go back down again, and you can do that for 30 seconds. And there's a great app you can download. I think it's called Tabata that will do the 30 on, 90 off for you and time it, and then you just keep on going. Dr. J, what are the biggest health mistakes that you see people making? The biggest health mistakes? Hmm, that's a really tough one. I would say off the bat, just the diet. They're kind of jumped into the food pyramid. They're thinking that, oh, you know, I'm going to eat these 10 servings of grains a day, and they think that that's okay, and they don't understand the autoimmune implications of it and the leaky gut implications. I think people think, because I'm not eating refined sugar, that drinking my orange juice is okay, and having all this tropical fruit may be okay, because they think, oh, it's not really sugar, because they think of sugar as like candy or sugar as like white table sugar. So I think the sugar aspects of it, and we know that's the case because we're consuming on average 145 pounds of sugar per year, where just 100 years ago was like five pounds of sugar a year. And that's pretty scary because that's an average, right? So if I'm only consuming, let's say, three pounds a year, that means someone else is out there consuming over 300 to, to, you know, to make it go to 150, right? So that's pretty scary. So I would say sneaking in refined carbohydrates and sugar, I would say the grains, and I would just say people getting exposed to lots of chemicals in their food from pesticides, herbicides, and genetically modified foods. What are some of the tips to kind of combat that that, that you would suggest and recommend? Well, the first one's pretty simple. It's take your grains and replace them with greens. So sub your grains for greens. That's an easy first step. Any fruit you're eating on the higher glycemic side, replace it with lower glycemic. So if you're doing a whole bunch of bananas and mangoes and pineapple, Replace it with some strawberries, blueberries, and raspberries instead. That's a real easy thing. I'm all about not trying to tell people not to do something. Substitute it. Substitute instead. Because if you can like tell someone, hey, instead of doing this, do that, then you're putting an action in its place versus saying, don't do this. Because then they're still, it's like saying, don't focus on the Red Bull. Well, you think of the Red Bull when you say don't focus on it, right? So, hey, Instead of this, do this instead. So I'd rather do a substitution than an elimination. We are running out of time, unfortunately, but are there any final tips you would give our listeners for maybe for those who are just starting this journey or maybe those that want to choose a functional medicine physician? Just a few tips. So off the bat, if you have health issues and you're not getting help by your conventional physician, and you are trying this whole diet and lifestyle thing. You're, you're improving your nutrient density. You're keeping the toxins out of your food by trying to go more organic. You're um, making sure your foods are anti-inflammatory. That's a great first start. I always recommend see how much you can get from just making those changes alone. Once that's dialed in, you can work on hydration. You can work on good quality sleep the right amount of exercise so you feel energized that day, afterwards, and the next day, and really making sure your sleep's good. Now, once that's dialed in, and if you still have health concerns that aren't being fully addressed, like hormonal issues, whether it's thyroid, female hormone, digestion, inflammation, mood issues, then you really wanna look at finding a great functional medicine doctor that can figure out what the next steps to go are. Now, if someone's interested, they can go to my site at justinhealth.com or check out my podcast at beyondwellnessradio.com to get more information. I have lots of free things over there. I have a female hormone video series as well as a thyroid hormone video series. I recommend start getting educated. See who makes the most sense and who resonates with you. So once you've already done all those things and you've maxed out where you're at, 
then you can reach out to a clinician to help you get the rest of the way there. And some people may not even need that because just the simple diet and lifestyle may be enough. So start with the low-hanging fruit, and then you can reach out to a good functional medicine doc later on if needed. Yeah, thank you for those tips. Uh, in our final couple minutes, I, I want to talk about your podcast. So it's called Beyond Wellness Radio, and you have some great information on there, and it, it can be found on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else and on your website, justinhealth.com. Why did you get into podcasting? Well, I like to take the conversation and extend it out. So in a YouTube video, you know, to hold people's attention, you have to keep it at 10 to 12 minutes. But sometimes it's nice to have a dynamic conversation, and that's what a podcast kind of allows you to have, because we can have this back and forth. I may say something, and you may want to hit that thread and digress and go on that topic. And I think the, the podcast gives us the ability to go more into depth, have a conversation, and just things organically come from a conversation. And I think a lot of people are enjoying podcasts because they can throw it on when they go to work and they're not missing the visuals, so to speak. And I think it just gives people that extra bit of information that they wouldn't quite get from a video or from a blog post. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the podcast is a, is a great way to share the message. And I listen to podcasts nonstop in the car. And so, you know, it, it's a, I actually kind of look forward to when I have to drive somewhere, because I can I can listen to different podcasts. But your podcast is very good, so congratulations on that. And you mentioned thank you. You mentioned your website, and uh, is there anything else um, you'd like to mention? How people can get a hold of you or anything else? Yeah, I would say the first thing is that they need to schedule a consult, or they're interested in, in kind of getting an intro consult to figure out if we're a good fit. You could go onto the Justin Health and just click the Work with Doctor J link. And also just subscribe to the thyroid and or female hormone series just so you can get more information because the more you know about your body, then you can take steps to make changes and adjustments. And then you're also going to feel empowered because I can't tell you how many people go to their conventional physician. They maximize the allopathic modalities to help them. And then they're just left with still having symptoms and then they're told at some point maybe it's all on their head or they're recommended medications that may actually cause more problems than they actually fix. Like if you have digestion issues, you may be put on a proton pump inhibitor that may create more nutrient deficiencies in the long run. Or if you have female hormone issues, you may be put on a birth control pill that doesn't fix anything. Or if you have low thyroid function, you may be put on Synthroid that may not convert to T3 and still may keep you with low thyroid symptoms. So again, figure out kind of where you're at and if you need help that's that would be the next step to look at because conventional medicine may not provide that lasting solution great to go get a you know ruled out for a pathology but you may not have to go a little deeper after that all right well dr j we are out of time this has been a great discussion and jacob thanks for being here today thank you and dr j thank you so much for being on our show and we really appreciate your insight into all these important issues well, Daniel and Jacob, I appreciate you guys having me. It was a great chat, and we'll have to have you guys on my show at some point to talk more about what you guys do as well. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys. You have a good one. Thank you for being with us today, and we hope that you are on the road to your successful low-carb lifestyle. Become a leader in your health and a leader in life. Check us out at www.thelowcarbleader.com. And remember to join Dan again next time on the Low Carb Leader Podcast.
On today's show, we have Dr. J, a chiropractor and a functional medicine expert. 